13, but let me pray for us as we prepare for that. Father, we thank you. The message of the song, really the psalm that we just heard, that we'll wait for you. And that waiting in the Bible is not passive. It's something very active. We look expectantly toward you. And when we don't see results or things happening the way we ought, our faith is greatly tested. Understandably so. We pray then that you would strengthen our trust in you today. Maybe for the first time we get a glimpse of what that really looks like. Or perhaps we've been in that place before and we've, we've forgotten what it looks like, what it feels like, what, what the reality is, how we inform our minds of what is true. And we hear the, the cry that is offered in the scriptures that we sang out earlier. I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Would you see fit to be with us today as we open up your word and seek to understand more of what that looks like on a daily basis. We thank you that you are at work all around the world reinforcing these realities. We certainly lift up Elizabeth Carey and the team that she's working with in Bulgaria. And Thank you for seeds that have been planted in hearts. We pray there be a great return on the, the, the labors of the many interns who are a part of that summer experience and especially those maybe who have heard the good news of Christ for the first time, that their hearts would be soft. We pray for our own hearts too, that they'd be open and receptive to your word, that even the parts of us that are jaded or hard would be softened and the, the rough edges made smooth, that your Holy Spirit would be kind and generous, but also if necessary would be a forceful in demolishing the barriers that we put up that don't allow us to see you or we've lost perspective. Be gracious and kind to us. We pray as we open up your word then that it would be words of life for us, a sweet fragrance, a breather, a fresh start, a fortifying reality that enables us in the midst of whatever we're facing to have hope and to wait and to breathe again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at Psalm 13. Uh, I have it for you here on the screen. Let's read that through first and then consider it again together this morning. Psalm 13 is a, a psalm of David. And actually, I wasn't planning on speaking uh, from this psalm. I have spoken before on it. I had a different plan, but just as the week went on, thinking and praying and considering, uh, this, this felt like, uh, seemed like the right, right message, uh, perhaps even just in terms of my own personal experience, maybe a collective one as well, I, I don't know, but this is, this is the psalm that we're dealing with here today. So let me, let me read this first for us. Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. A handful of months ago, I got to officiate in Colon Savannah's wedding, and that was a moment of tremendous joy, of course. And in American weddings, we have a rehearsal first, and you go through the motions, and you prepare, and there's a sense of anticipation. And, you know, marriages like that on their beginning end are full of joy. There's a lot of excitement and hope for what is to come. So we finished the rehearsal, and then I had another appointment. Uh, usually you have the rehearsal, and then you go to a dinner. But in between, I had to do a funeral. It was actually for my, my uncle, uh, his uncle's wife, who maybe a year ago or so became evident as she had stage four cancer that she was not going to be around much longer. Her faith was, uh, was failing her. Her health was failing her. But God was using that to stir up in her heart something about thinking about deeper things. Uh, and some of the regrets that she had in life, she had burned some bridges in some of her relationships. Now she was seeking to repair those. And she was beginning to ask some really serious questions. One of the passages I referenced, and by the way, this was in Spokane, so it was a Zoom experience, which was a little strange, uh, but nonetheless... Uh, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That's a strange thing to say. What would you prefer to do today? Go over to a feast, a buffet, a wonderful spread like we had last week, or go to a place where people are sad and despondent and thinking about death. And the reason that Solomon says that, as many of you know, this was a very wise person who had access to everything, is that when death is in front of us, we have to ask deeper questions. We have to face our mortality. It's the great problem of being a teenager. You think you're never going to die. And as time goes on and as losses accrue, you realize there is an end point. And Solomon says, that's actually good. Because it makes you ask deeper questions about life. That's why it was better for him to go there. Now, in our American culture, we don't like loss, uh, death, and grief. We don't know how to deal well when something is taken away with, from, from us. We, we want it to go away quickly. If you're familiar with the Bible, and especially with Jewish culture, you know that when there's a death, it takes a long time. There's, there's days and weeks of mourning and fasting. You dress in a way that indicates something is not right. You commemorate it annually and you look back on it. Americans, most Americans, we just want to forget about it and move on. We don't know how to deal with loss and with grief and with hardship and sadness. We see it as something to avoid oftentimes. But you really can't do that if you're aware enough to realize there is loss in this life and if you're a student of the Bible because the Bible has got a lot to say about loss. It's got a lot to say about lament. There's a whole book called Lamentations. It's about sadness, loss. The people of Israel are in exile and they weep about it for pages upon pages. There's lots of characters in the Bible that you can look at who experience profound loss, almost from beginning to end, all throughout. The hardships of life, what it's like not to be able to have a child when you desperately want to get pregnant, or what it's like to lose a child to death 
when you do. What it's like to be betrayed by your best friend. What it's like not to be able to put food on the table because you don't have a job. These are all people in the Bible. And they all experience profound loss. And one of them was David. And David, he was a man's man in many ways. You wouldn't expect that he would express things as deeply as he does. And I want to take a look this morning at what it means to learn to lament. Because we probably need some training in that. And just to give a summary, too, of a, of a book that actually Bill gave to me. Uh, I think, Bill, after the loss of your father, maybe you started reading this. Is that true? Uh, called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament by Mark Vrogop. So if you do um, Wordle, this would be an interesting one here, too. It's got a bunch of odd letters put together for your average Wordle. But he does a great job. He had loss in his life, the death, death of a child as well, and tried to sort through all of that. And just to give a summary of what Psalm 13 says, and even his, his book as a whole, this quote actually is on the back. I haven't been able to find it in the text, but it's a good summary here. That lament avoids trite answers and quick solutions, progressively moving us toward deeper worship and trust. So lament in, in, in the Bible as a whole we want quick solutions. It doesn't work that way. But as we do it, lament in and of itself is it's a mechanism for pushing us toward something. It's either going to push us away from God or toward him. And if we do this, if we learn how to lament well, it will move us toward actually deeper worship, deeper trust in God. When there's profound loss, and that loss is a scale. There can be very small losses, and, and the, the, the process of, of lamenting those is very real. It may go a little more quickly because it's not quite so profound. And there are huge losses that you may spend your entire life lamenting and waiting for the resolution of it. The Bible tells us there is hope, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But in the meantime, let's dive into what David's experiencing. And he starts here with this first phrase to remind you, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So if we're learning to lament, we can say from this passage, a big part of it is speaking honestly to God. If you've had loss and grief, tell God about it. Honestly. That is a part of the lamenting process. It's the full expression of the emotional intensity that you're experiencing. Now, I said David was kind of a man's man in a sense, but he was more than that. He was a political hero of his day. He had high approval ratings as the leader of Israel. He was an incredible musician. I mean, this guy could shred on the lute <laughs> and the lyre or whatever you gave him. He was a military phenomenon as well as a warrior. Remember how he got his career started, this unassuming shepherd boy and the big giant Goliath? I mean, this is like a cage match. Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg, maybe, who knows, but kind of even more distorted. And he emerges victorious. I mean, there'd be all kinds of posters about this guy that you'd, you'd probably have David if they made posters like this, in your room as a little Israelite boy. I want to be like him someday. Cut your hair like he does. and Wear the same stuff that he does, you know? 
He engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a bear and a lion. Bear grills much? If you're familiar with him. I mean, this guy was, he was a stud. And in many Eastern cultures, uh, and definitely in American culture, the stereotype of a man is someone who's tough. He's got grit. He doesn't admit weakness. He keeps his emotions to himself. He's entirely self-sufficient. Marlboro man, for those of you who know that, right? This is John Wayne stuff going on. Don't admit you have a problem. Overcome everything just by true grit. And David certainly could fall into that. He, he had all the chops, right? The backdrop for doing it. But he destroys that image in the Psalms. <laughs> if, if you're willing to pay attention and listen, he is tough, but he's brutally honest. He's honest about his emotions when he's struggling with things. It's not just about his emotions, but he's honest about his own struggles. And here he's struggling with God. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? He's struggling internally with his emotions as well. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? He's struggling with others. How long will my enemy triumph over me? He's just out there in God's word for everybody to see saying, I'm having problems with God. I'm having problems inside thinking right. And I got a problem with you too. Everywhere he looks, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's tired, he's weary, he's distraught. He's mired in profound loss. In these first two verses, he feels forgotten, alone, abandoned, overwhelmed. The thoughts circling over and over in his mind, he's paralyzed by sadness. And he's defeated by others. If that doesn't have a social media parallel, by the way, I don't know what does. How long are they going to keep posting? About me, how long I have to keep seeing this over and over and have the thought reinforced in my head that I'm worthless. I can't measure up. I'm not good enough. If only they find out who I really am. This is, this is what David is struggling with. He's weary. He's tired of it all. He's depressed. It's so pervasive and strong. Listen to the words he uses. Forever. Hide your face. Wrestle. Every day, sorrow in my heart. And you can hear the desperation, the feeling of no escape and no relief. How long? How long? How long? How long? Four times. Those of you who are students of the Bible know when you repeat something, it's an emphasis. The only character trait describing God three times is one three times. Holy, holy, holy. David knew that. And he's saying, how long, how long, how long, how long? He is so overwhelmed. And he repeats it again and again and again. How long, how long, how long, how long? It's not a one-time experience for David. It's been going on for quite a while. And he wonders if it will ever end. It feels like it won't. He's at the end of his resources. When it says, wrestle with my thoughts, according to Alec Mocher, just great biblical scholar, he says, the force of that Hebrew means to place plan after plan after plan within myself. How long do I have to wrestle with my thoughts? That is, I've got these problems, and I'm trying to find out how to change it, and I keep thinking about it over and over and over, and these plans aren't working. How long? He's just at the end. He realizes he can't get himself out of this. And that he needs something beyond himself to intervene, but that's so profound about this psalm. He needs God... And he's calling out to God, 
And God is silent. Where are you? Don't you see me? How long, how long, how long, how long? And it's just like nothing is responding. Like he's talking to the air. He certainly hasn't seen any change in his circumstances. And when you bear the weight of that kind of hardship, emotional trauma, and you feel like there's no way out from it, it affects you on every single level. Physically. You read some of these psalms. It's like my bones are wasting away. That's a physical statement. We've seen it's emotional, the trauma that he's experiencing here. It's, there's a mental reality to it. There's a spiritual reality to it. God, I thought you would be on my side, but I don't see you at work here. Every element of the human existence is present. And where is God in all this? And you might ask that question sometime in your life. Maybe you never have. Or maybe you have asked it. Psalm 13 is a great place to go in the midst of that. You know, a lot of us, I think I remember not that long ago saying, how long is this pandemic going to go on? Forever? Am I living in some sort of made-up dystopian novel? No, it's right here. How long? How long will our politics be so polarizing? Does anybody ever ask that? How long? How long will there be sexual abuse rampant? Human trafficking? How long will there be racial discrimination? Infertility? Miscarriages? Chronic physical illness? Joyless marriages, school shootings. Don't you ever, how long? How long will I struggle with that same sin that goes over and over and over again? I, I'm so tired of it. I honestly think I'm going to change, and there it is again. How long will I be weighed down by guilt, by hopelessness, by feeling overwhelmed, by being depressed? How long, O oh Lord? And that's the shape of lament, brutal honesty. This is God's word. And David is saying, how long will you forget me? Wow! See, lament, even that part, there's, there's some narrative that says, you can't be honest with God. Throw that out. Or cut out the Psalms from your Bible. You've got one of those two options. Here it is, raw, brutal honesty. That's the shape of lament. It, it, it goes on. In verses 3 and 4, look on me and answer me. O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. This, this, this is such a profound de depression, he feels like he's going to die. He's having thoughts of death. And so lament isn't just speaking honestly to God. Lament is speaking honestly to God. <laughs> it's speaking honestly to God. You can go to God honestly. And, and here we see David being very personal, very direct, very desperate, but upward in his appeal. He's beginning to fight back to all that's happening. And he's, he's turning his eyes up there. Even though he doesn't feel like there's been a response, it's an honest and direct appeal in desperation to God. There's a confidence here in this approach. And that confidence is rooted in the language of relationship. Look on me and answer me, oh Lord, my God. 
For some, it might start out as a desperate cry to God with no relational context. You might have a moment in life where you're like, I realize now I cannot deal with all of this. Maybe I'll turn to God. That could be where maybe you haven't, aren't there yet. But that's where a lot of us might start. David wasn't there. He'd had a long-term relationship with God. He was a man after God's own heart. He'd seen God provide. He'd, he had a list of stories of grace. David, every single Sunday, we had stories of grace. would be like, David again? He's coming up here sharing about God's faithfulness. And he's the one saying, have you forgotten me? This is my God. I'm, there's a relationship I had that was vibrant and real, and now it feels like you're not there. He's really wrestling with that. Maybe that's why the silent hurts all the more. I think it is. He realizes if God himself does not rescue him, there's no hope. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. See, he's reaching up or saying, God, I'm at the end of my rope. I feel like I've been calling out. But what else can I do? Where else can I go? It's like when the disciples you know, had some hard lessons and they said, where else can we go? You're the only one who has the words of life. He goes back to God despite his circumstances. And he's honest. Restore my vision. I can't see clearly anymore. Grant me the ability to see, even just to breathe. Have you ever been at the point where you just say, I don't even know if I can go on breathing? God, give me the breath to be able to move ahead. And there's real hopelessness, and there's real despair, and he's fighting back as best as he can. Of course, it's not like David just expresses this in a song. You know, he's got his lute. And he's just been writing, he's been praying, he's having a quiet time with God, and he says, I'm really struggling. He expresses it, puts his lute down, and then goes out and has lunch with his friends, and he's happy. It doesn't quite happen that way. He doesn't just lightly step away for a meal. And lament doesn't work that way, especially on a scale. Instead, it provides the framework or the language for beginning the transition from suffering to trust. That's what lamentations as a book does, in lamenting throughout the Bible. It gives us the language for beginning to trans, transfer all the suffering into a trust of a deeper trust in God. It's the canvas on which you begin painting the pain of your soul. Now, the image came to mind when I was thinking about it. Like of a blank canvas right there. This is all, and when you lament and you pick up the brush and the paint and you start painting that, this is your lament. It's, it's the language, putting pictures and maybe even words, if you want to prefer, writing it down to your soul and the deep pain that you have. And it's God himself who has supplied the canvas and the tools and the colors. Lament can move us not to the conclusion that God doesn't care or that he doesn't exist, but in fact quite the opposite. And primarily because he himself knows lament. So many of the psalms are offered on the lips of Jesus. This is one of them, Psalm 22, just a little bit later. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's, that's something that Jesus said. David was a type of Christ prefiguring him, not in a perfect sort of way, but last week when you were, if you were here and we said, the king has been anointed, he's on his throne, it's King Jesus. But the pathway to that throne was through death. And in the most profound theological category I've ever tried to put together in my mind, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect Trinitarian, Trinitarian fellowship from all time except on the cross. When he took on 
the weight and the wrath of sin, the agony of every single one of our sins placed on him in that moment. And the perfect fellowship between father and son was rent asunder, and he took on all of that and said, my God, my God, where are you? This is the words of Psalm 22 and also Psalm, Psalm 13. He'd done nothing wrong. This is the greatest injustice, if it's true, in history. The one who did nothing wrong took it on willingly and knew the greatest pain and sorrow, abandonment and forsakenness you could ever imagine. For you. So that you would never have to. So that when you have those moments where you say, where are you, God? God can say, look at my son. I know what it's like. You, he is for you. You are not alone. He did something there that actually has taken all those sufferings. And, and there's a beautiful psalm that says he's taken your tears in a bottle. He's bottled them up. And one day, it'll all become clear. But now just hang on and trust. And you're not alone. My son knows what you're going through. That's what this is all prefiguring. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? We hear those words from the son in whom he delights, feeling the full weight of Psalm 13's abandonment for us. But we'll never have to know that in full. That reality begins the pivot. I think some of it just expressing the sorrow and being honest to God begins. There's something that God does. And, and again, it's kind of a scaled thing. Some of us have tiny, you know, little, little canvases. You lost your guppy that was given to you by, you know, you're in third grade and somebody who you wanted to be your valentine gave you a little goldfish. And you walk in and your goldfish is dead someday. That's sad. That's really, really sad. It's kind of like a tiny little picture and you, you, you're painting on that. You're sad. You express your sorrow. But you know what? Probably in 10 years, somebody will say, remember the guppy, you know? You're like, oh, yeah. And, but there are some big canvases in your life, aren't there? They're still at work. You're still trying to put it all together. And they're not going to go away lightly. And the biggest canvas of all has been written by the one who, who from all eternity knew what was going on and said, here's my plan of redemption. And we see that unfolding in verses 5 through 6 as well. What does the psalmist do in the midst of all this? He says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So he's speaking honestly to God, and he's still choosing to trust him. He's trusting his character. He's trusting his saving grace. He's trusting his provision, and he's trusting his sufficiency. He's choosing to do that, despite his circumstances. And the Hebrew brings this out a little bit more. You know, there are some, some languages, like, um, I don't know if it's entirely true in Spanish, but canto, what does canto mean? Canto, C-A-N-T-R, probably not even saying it right. I sing, I sing. Can you say yo canto? Why would you say yo canto? Yeah. You could say, I don't know if it's like this in, in Spanish, but you can say yo for the I, sing, it's already built in. In Hebrew, you can say canto, I sing, or yo canto, and if it's the yo, the I, it's emphatic, I. It doesn't have to be there in the Hebrew, but it is. I trust. He says, but I trust. 
All these circumstances could tell me I shouldn't, I can't hear or see you, but I'm going to choose to do it anyway. <laughs> but I trust. What does he trust in? He's not trusting in the current circumstances. He's trusting in God's character. It's an act of his will. It's not a blind trust. It's rooted in God's chesed. When it says, I trust in your unfailing love, that is covenant language for the people of God. I trust in your chesed. This is what God revealed to his people. This is the essence of my character. I will place my love and my affection on you, my chesed, in covenant. I'm committing to you to the end. And this is what it looks like for you to be my people and for me to be your God. That's what it, that word is trying to communicate. And so David says, I can't see it, I can't feel it, but I'm going to trust in it. In God's character. Not in the circumstances and what they might be telling me, but in who God has revealed himself to be. That's the only thing I can really trust in. That's where it begins to kind of reorient him. You know, some of you, I'm sure, I mentioned Lamentations. You'll be very familiar with this passage. I don't have it for you here, but in Lamentations 3, in verse 19, we read, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. He was in the same place as David. And then it goes on in verse 21, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So he says, I've got all this sorrow, but I'm going to hope anyway. In what? Because of the Lord's great love, his chesed. Because of God's character. We're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. This active trust in the midst of what feels like silence that's not only part of what lament looks like but that's a good definition of faith as well David says he will choose to find joy in the fact that God is who he says he is even if he can't see it and he goes on to talk about it, God's redemption God's plan for us my heart rejoices in your salvation, there's that big arc of story, the giant canvas that God is working on. And, and you're a piece of that as well. And I love the glimpse at the very end. This is the hope that we're waiting for to come about, just to give you a picture of that grand arc of what we call redemption from Revelation 21. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There won't be any more mourning. There won't be any more crying. There'll be no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he goes on to say, Behold, I'm making all things new. And the down payment, the proof positive that that is true was in Jesus. That's what the, that's what the Bible tells us. The proof that this isn't just some sort of fabricated thing is the actual life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's the down payment proving this is really true. And not just that God is, can do something about it, but that he cares enough. He gave his own son. And he knew the abandonment so that we could get this. And trust begins with recognizing that we need something beyond ourselves. But here, too, it's kind of cultivated in the context of worship. You see, he says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. 
I'll sing to God because of what he's done, but also just because he's good. <laughs> That's the character part, but he has been good to me. I, I find a lot of times it's very helpful in moments of distress to look back and remember God's faithfulness. This is a very common biblical practice, by the way. When they're wandering in the desert, they remember his provision in the past. That's why some people journal, and some of us are just not good journalers. And we tell the stories again and again. The, you know, the, the Bible was oral to begin with, too. Tell the stories of God's redemption over and over. We need to remember he's good, because in a moment of uh, where we're really struggling, we, we might make that the reality. But it's not true. God has done so much good. Today, we all live and breathe and move because of God's grace. Whether you recognize it or not, he's the one who's given us the very breath in our lungs. And I think it seems, anyway, remembering God's goodness combats the enemies of our soul. Those are some of the thoughts that you're hearing again and again, the tape recorder. Remembering God's goodness is one of the great ways to fight against that tape that keeps playing over and over. And how we get here takes different paths. Those paths aren't always clear or straightforward or formulaic. But the basics are here for us to explore and to experience. And I said last week, and I've said it before, I love the Psalms. I find they're so, so real and so relevant, all the cool words we could use today to describe it. And they, it's both and, right? It's, I'm continually fascinated by the, the, the imminence presented in the scripture. God is with us. Jesus knew all that we experienced. He, he had our emotions. He put on our flesh as well as our sorrow. And then also the transcendence. But this isn't a God that you can just control. He's the one who created all things. He always has been, always will be. So, so you, you have to mash these together. And where do you see that pictured most beautifully? But again, in the person of Christ. Fully God and fully man. This is why Christians love Jesus so much. I hope even if you're not, wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you can see why those of us who are, despite what's kind of strange sometimes, the church has got a lot of messed up people in it. I'm being one of them. But you see, Jesus is what's so beautiful. Here he is doing all this stuff for us, that's the grace of God. We sang a song earlier by William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but apparently it's pronounced Cooper. And William Cooper, he had a hard life. He was born in the 1700s, and most of his hard life wasn't really circumstantial, it was mental. He, was, he struggled with depression his entire life. He was institutionalized because of his depression. And one of the songs we sang, he wrote, Heal us, Emmanuel. Here we are. We're deep wounded souls. He wrote a ton of songs and a lot of music. And the very last one that he ever wrote is a, a song called God Moves in, Mysterious, in a Mysterious Way. It, these aren't all the words, but here's just a few of them. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. 
Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. If you feel like God is against you, those deep, dark clouds break into mercy at one point. And even if you feel like all you see is the frown of God, that's your perception because behind it is a smiling face. He is for you. He rejoices over you. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Jesus did. His son was the perfect sacrifice. He bore all the weight of your sin. See, that's the good news of the gospel. And that frees us to be very honest and speak honestly to God, but to move us toward a deeper trust, even in the midst of our pain and our sorrow. And again, that's why I go back to that original quote. It's not a quick fix, especially if the scale of loss and pain is large, but there is a place to go with it. Psalm 88, strangely one of my favorite psalms. It's the most depressing psalm in the entire book. It ends with depression and feeling like he just wants to die. But it begins by saying, have mercy on, my, on me, God, my God. He takes all of his heart and he says he lays it before God because he has nowhere else to go with it. That's it. It's the end of the psalm. There is, it's not one of those psalms that ends, but, I mean, I'm really having a but I'm going to praise you. It's just, I feel like dying. End of story. And it's in God's book. So if you're struggling, and if you're not struggling, you will at some point, on some scale, on some level. And when that happens, why not turn open to, to one of God's songs in Psalm 13 and be reminded that you can speak honestly to God. And that there's always the hope of moving this lament, moving us toward deeper trust and worship in him. Father, I pray for our, our hearts this morning that whatever barriers we may have to being honest with you would be removed. And there are probably plenty of us here who feel like we're just speaking to air when we talk. There's no response. There's no changed circumstance. So this is a spiritual work for you to, to reach into our hearts and to show us. It's not just spiritual. It's grounded in historical reality of Christ walking on the earth, of the, the pivot of history. But the, it's not just a bunch of facts, too. It's, it's something more than that. You're inviting us into trust, which is a relational term. So if we can't say, my God, this morning, we pray you would do that kind of work that opens the door just a bit to be able to say that. And then to break open the floodgates with your mercy and to show us the hope that's offered in what we call the gospel. And the hope of a God who doesn't just say, get through it, John Wayne, but who offers his son and gives us grace and strength of the day in such a way that he's sealed and guaranteed our future, a time when there will be no more mourning loss or pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. We cling to that hope this day. We wait for that reality. And we thank you for Christ who has given us his spirit as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come. So Lord, hear our prayer. Heal us this day, deep wounded souls. To you we fly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.